Uh, for everyone else, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 this morning, Matthew 9. Again, we want to welcome those visiting with us. Um, some of you I know, and I'm glad to see you. Others I'm getting to know, and I'm, we're always thrilled to see you. Uh, I don't know if you saw the communion service. There are plenty of cups left over, so keep bringing your friends, and we'll figure out you know, more space. The further back up in the mezzanine you sit, the less, um, the, the more informal it's going to feel. I'll just say that. And uh, we've had people try to sit in that back corner back there. That's a funny thing because then they're looking at what I'm looking at. And usually they don't make it for a couple minutes. They got to get, you know, because it's too much pressure. People are watching me. Uh, so, um, but, it, you know, we haven't uh, found that that group of sociopaths that do very well in those corners back there. But, but when they show up and they're staring at you, just don't, don't worry. Maybe the Lord will provide. We could build something out in the yard out there in a, uh, in a timely manner. All right, we're in Matthew chapter 9, and uh, I am having a ball with this portion of Matthew because, as you know, and I've told you many times, Matthew wrote his gospel not to tell you the chronological life of Christ so much. There, there are things in different sequences in the different Gospels. The stories are generally the same. There are some detailed differences um, where one will supply something the others don't. But what I'm saying is in Matthew, he's structured it thematically around his big speeches, the big sermons uh, that we call the discourses in Matthew. And you've seen this outline gazillions of times. This is our 28th message on, Isaiah, on Matthew, and we're really doing well because we're in Matthew chapter, chapter 9. Of 28. So we're, we're cruising, cruising right along. And we're in the lead up, the stories that are in the lead up to the great discipleship discourse where he sends his disciples out with the mis mission of proclaiming the offer of the kingdom to national Israel. And that speech is chapter 10, uh, most of it, most of chapter 10, which we're headed toward. But to lead up to that, Matthew tells you several stories, several events in the ministry of Jesus that are prefatory to the speech in terms of the theme of building his disciples and offering the kingdom to Israel. The by the way, the disciples received what Jesus taught and eventually received the Holy Spirit and then went on mission and made more disciples. That's why we're here today. That worked out well. The offer of the kingdom to national Israel was rejected. And we'll see in chapter 9 the seeds in the leadership of that rejection and what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so my goal today with what time remains, we always, Lord's Table Sundays, we always have a shorter sermon unless I'm um, a very unkind uh, pastor. Uh, so... Um, it's, a, it's, it's not a long sermon on a pretty Sunday today, but I do want to look in Matthew 9 at these stories, these accounts that are individual little, little tellings of Jesus' ministry, and I want to tell you that the wonderful things that Jesus did that are the works of the kingdom, if this is happening, the kingdom's in your midst. I'm offering what it's going to be like when God's kingdom is here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, Jesus said. What's it going to be like in the kingdom? It's like Isaiah described. There's no more nature curse where the animals are fighting each other. That's what the kingdom's going to be like. And Jesus is doing the miracles of the kingdom. He's doing the wonderful works of healing the blind, raising the dead. And that's the section that we're in. And, and this is difficult for us sometimes. Those flashy things that Jesus did that we're looking forward to in the coming kingdom that he offered Israel and they rejected him. Those flashy things are not as big a deal as the resurrection. 
What you do when you tell someone about Jesus and they come to have eternal life because they trusted in Christ, and that's the only way you can get it. What you do when you share Christ with someone and they trust in Christ and by God's marvelous saving work, they believe in the work of Jesus and they apply it to themselves and say, Jesus is my savior. And that's the moment of their new birth and they receive the spirit of God living in them. Paul says forever. The Holy Spirit comes to abide forever. Those things that you can't feel touch, that you don't see, that are not flashy, my brother rose from the dead kind of miracles like with Lazarus. Those things are a bigger deal because now eternity's managed. Now the, the transformation has begun. I am new in Christ and I will get a resurrection body. And Lazarus died later. The blind man, his eyes don't see anymore who was made to see. The, the mute man, as we'll read, he can't talk anymore because his body's in the ground. But the resurrection, the resurrection is the miracle and it's coming. And I just want to point that out because what Jesus does in offering the kingdom and doing the works of the kingdom is a testimony to his message. And we carry that message. You can have this eternal life if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as we just proclaimed. Amen. We're trusting in Christ as our savior. And the very moment you put your personal faith in Jesus as your savior is what Jesus describes as being born from above in John chapter three. All right. In Matthew 8, we saw the Jesus heal the leper, and it doesn't make him dirty to cleanse a leper. He heals this man with leprosy right after teaching in Matthew, 7, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 what the Mosaic law really was talking about. The centurion comes, and Jesus marvels that there's no greater faith in all of Israel. I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel than this man who says, my servant is ill, but you can heal him without even going. You just say it, and it'll be done because you're working under your father. And we learned that principle. We saw Peter uh, in Capernaum. Jesus goes into Peter's home, and Peter's mother-in-law, listen to it. Peter has a mother-in-law. He's married. Anyway, so Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law is sick and Jesus heals her and then she gets up and serves him. And then you have these two fellows that come to Jesus. They're called disciples. They say, Lord, let me come where you're going. And Jesus says, you don't really want to go where I'm going. You want me. So foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but there's no place for the son of man to rest his head. Your, your motivation is for what I can give you. You know, I'm going to improve your housing situation. No, it's me. You really uh, want to come with the son of man and not for the wrong reason. And then let me bury my father first. Well, I'm sorry. If your dad is more important to you than walking with me, you've misunderstood who I am. And, and that's not a right calculation. I made your dad. I made him. We read in Hebrews 1, I'm holding together by my powerful word. He doesn't say that, but that's the truth of this. And so if Jesus asks you, hey, come with me, you know what you want to do. You want to drop your fishing, fishing gear, okay? You want to go and just nothing, no, no other priority, no higher priority. And by the way, who told us to honor our father and mother? God. Who insists that, that, the, that the, the scribes and Pharisees are dishonoring God and how they don't take care of their parents? Jesus. So the message is not to, to cancel the obligations to say there's a higher obligation. You need to make Christ first and nothing, and nothing else is in between you and him and everything else is a distant second. And that is tough for people who keep their minds on earthly things. But those people we read in Philippians 3 have their end as destruction. Their God is their stomach. They set their mind on earthly things. In verses 23 through 27, you had Jesus uh, taking a nap 
and the disciples wetting their pants. Pardon the expression. They are, they are falling apart and quaking with fear because these seasoned fishermen are in a, a death battle with the, with the water, with the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus rebukes the disciples for not trusting him. And then he rebukes the sea and the, and the wind and everything dies down. And they say, what man can control nature? And that is Jesus calms the storm. And then you had this, this story of the Gadarene demoniacs or the, the, that, are, that live in Gerasa. And one of them specifically read in Mark and, and uh, Luke says, I have legion in me. My name is legion for your many. And we have this, this story that we, we focused on last time to talk about what the Bible teaches, actually teaches, not what I conjecture, or what I feel in my heart or, or, or in my liver or some other organ, but what the Bible teaches about demonism. And what it teaches here is that Jesus is, uh, is in authority over this. He is more powerful than the dark forces of Satan and, and his minions. You uh, don't need to be afraid of Satan and the fallen angels because, and only because you're with Christ. Now, otherwise you might be afraid, but hey, I've got Christ. I have eternal life. I have a guaranteed resurrection to life. And so why am I afraid of what any man or any angel can do to me? I'm not worried about the principalities and powers. When I have Jesus is the message that Matthew presents in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And that's important for you to do ministry in the time in which you live. To do ministry with people, especially believers, in the time in which we live, it's very common for people to say, but the devil, but the devil. The devil's strong. The devil wants to get me. The devil's weighing me down. The devil, the devil, the devil. And this is a marvelous passage to walk someone through. It's also a story. And you tell the story and say, Jesus is not struggling uh, with, with the devil. He, it's not a problem for him. The, 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 the war rages. There's an angelic war. There's a problem that we're facing. And you don't want to love the world or the things in the world because the devil's pulling the strings on the world. You don't want any part of that. You want to renounce the works of the devil. Don't be part of that at all. But you don't blame the devil for your failures because you're in Christ. You succeed in him and no other way. And I'm, it's big talk, isn't it? But that's what Matthew teaches us in chapter 8. Now let's get to chapter 9 and we'll read it together. The authority to forgive sins and the opposition to that authority is the first story. The authority to forgive sins. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, which was, anybody know? Capernaum. Jesus lived in this phase of his ministry in Capernaum. And they brought to him a paralytic. Do you know what the Greek word for paralytic is? paralytic. It's paralytic. It's the same word. Okay. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And that throws me for a loop. Hasn't he said, uh, get up and walk? Hasn't he said, storm, quiet down? Now he says to the man that's paralyzed, your sins are forgiven because he's showing you that the real healing is what he will accomplish for us at the cross. Jesus, as God in the flesh, can say your sins are forgiven because he is the means by which the sins will be forgiven. That's what Matthew is driving to 20 chapters from now, in chapter 26, or not quite 20 chapters. Jesus and, and, and some of the scribes, now who are the scribes? The scribes are the religious leadership that are supposed to know the Old Testament scriptures. They're supposed to know Isaiah 53. They're supposed to know that this is the work of the Messiah to deliver them from their sins. But they don't. They don't know God and they don't know Moses, even though they can quote him. And that should give us Bible people pause. We should think about this. 
The people back then were, that were the Bible people, the scribes, they're the copyists, they're the people in, that, that are managing the text and they're faithful with it. They're missing it. Always learning but not coming to the knowledge of the truth. Right? It's, it's not learning about God. We're knowing God. This is a relationship with God and they don't have it. And what you do if you don't have God and you've got your religiosity, you've got your system and your system's flawed, and when someone comes and challenges your system and the, the person is God in the flesh and he says, son, your sins are forgiven, what you do is you attack it and you reject it. And this is the foreshadowing of the rejection of the offered kingdom. The scribes and them said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Hey, where does thinking take place in the Bible? In the heart. Be careful about that head and heart stuff. The Bible says the heart is the organ of thought. It also is a place where you rejoice. It's also a place where you grieve. It's also a place where you think. The Bible doesn't do the stuff that we do with it with the, in our culture. It's the core of your inner person, the thinking. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, that's an interesting question. Which would be more I mean, that's a theological question. Hey, you're theologians, scribes. Let's do some theology. Which is easier, a physical miracle to this man's inter internal systems, his endocrine nervous system, his musculoskeletal system, his, his, his cardiovascular system. Which is easier for me to get up and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? And I believe it's the latter. We're dazzled, beloved, with the physical miracle that he gets up and walks. Wow. Nobody could do that. I mean, we can't do that with neurosurgery. But Jesus can do it. Wow, that's amazing. But, but the point is that, more importantly, Jesus can say your sins are forgiven. It's a bigger miracle. That's Jesus' point. But so that you will know, listen to the reason for the miracles, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, the miracle is testifying to the real miracle. The physical healing, the paralytic. You know what I'm going to say about this guy's bones, right? The man couldn't walk and he, he was paralyzed. Guess what's true about his body now? Paralyzed. Can't move. In a box. In the dust. That body is not moving. What I'm trying to tell you is the temporal, the temporary thing that Jesus did isn't the big thing. The forgiveness of sins is the eternal thing. And the resurrection that follows, the resurrection to life. Did you know everybody's going to get resurrected? There's a resurrection to life. You want to be part of that? Oh, we're going to be part of that. If you trust in Christ as your Savior right now, if you have Christ as your Savior, you will be resurrected to life and eternal life with God. You know what happens if you don't have Christ? You get the resurrection to death. It's the second resurrection. It's an eternal existence separated from God. It's described as a lake burning with, with fire and sulfur. You don't want anything to do with it. And I challenge you, learn the easy way. Learn from the testimony of those who know, like the Apostle John, and not by your own experience. Try not to be a scientist on this one to see if there really is a hell. You're not going to like the way the experiment turns out. But that's what we do. We try to make our life an experiment, see if this will work. God tells you what will work. God tells you what he wants right here. So, so, but you, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. 
So the physical miracle that dazzles us because we could see it is a testimony to the real miracle of the forgiveness of sins that is the point of all four gospels. Jesus is going to die for our sins and rise on the third day. And the man got up and went home, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. Good translation, New American Standard. They were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is God's stuff that just happened. God has the authority to fix the man's body. God has the authority to forgive sin. Who must we conclude is this man that just quieted the storm and kicked the demons out of the demoniac? Who is this man where God, he has God's power in him? It's God in the flesh. This is the kingdom that is being offered. You know, one, one of the great comments about studying the gospels is that you get to know your savior thinking about him, working through these things, thinking about what he said, the conflict and the opposition, you really get to know somebody when you see him in conflict. Like you get married and you didn't fight all that time in the preparation phase. You know, you had that uh, the pretend thing that this is who I pretend to be. And then, and then reality sets in after the honeymoon or about 15 seconds after I do. And then, and then you start to see conflict. Now we really start to get to know each other. Now I know we have our little silly conflict before, but it's not like the reality that sets in after conflict. You really get to know someone through conflict, and this is where the conflicts begin as Matthew portrays them in the ministry of Jesus. We've already had a little conflict with the kingdoms of the earth, with Herod and the babies. We've had conflict with the religious crowd because John the Baptist calls them out, but now Jesus is getting direct pushback. This man blasphemes, and he gave them a shot, and I love that they get a chance to, to repent. They get a chance to reconsider who Jesus is. He's not blaspheming. For you to say he is is for you to be blaspheming. You are opposed to God. He's doing the works of God because he's God in the flesh. All right, now we get the Jesus with the sinners. How would you like for your story in the Bible, if you were to make it into the Bible, we just saw, by the way, check out First Hour if you didn't hear it. First Hour is the, the study on uh, biblical ownership or radical disciples, radical stewardship. And we talked about how John 17 mentions you. Very few places in the Bible actually mention the believers at Preston City Bible Church, but John 17 uh, does, and, uh, right around verse 20 and following in that, in that section. Well, here, how would you like to be that if you're writing a book and you tell the part of your story, the part of your story is how you and the people you hang out with are so gross and disgusting to the community around you that it brings forth this magnificent picture of God's grace that he saved you. This is one of those testimony stories in Matthew where I was such a wretched sinner, but God held his nose enough to come save me despite my wicked wretchedness. That's what's going on with Matthew, and we're all Matthew. We're all Levi in the tax booth. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, what do you do? In the book on discipleship, which is the Gospel of Matthew, what do you do when Jesus comes by and says, come on, what do you do? Drop it and go. That's all you do. Remember this. To be a disciple of the Lord is to be ready to drop it and go. By the way, what do you have that's holding you back from being his disciple now? Drop it. Drop it. It's his. I'm talking to believers now. If you're a believer in Jesus, what's holding you back from saying it's all his? You need to let it go. Because it is his anyway. You're just living in a, in a fantasy. Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And then it happened. As Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. See, these are the unwanted. We're back to the leper in chapter 8. These are the people the law prescripts. These are the people that are rightly rejected by the society. You know what's wrong with these people? Zacchaeus is one of these guys. These tax collectors will take more money from you than the government requires and, and take it for themselves. And if you don't give them what their markup is, they'll say you didn't pay your taxes and you're in trouble with the government. It's like government people that are violating the system and using the power of the government to do it. Here in the gospel of the kingdom, here in the offer of the coming kingdom of righteousness, right here, it's uh, Jesus is, is more powerful than bureaucracy. <laughs> and the sin of the wicked uh, with using the power, God-given power of government um, to oppress the righteous or even the, the, the helpless. So, so Jesus is not only got hold of Matthew, but Matthew is a disciple. And so he's like, hey, everybody, come on. We're going to come to my house and have dinner. And so Matthew's people, the other tax collectors and sinners, come hang out. And that is very offensive to the people that don't know God, the religious crowd that should be caretakers of the word of God. When the Pharisees, we already heard the scribes, now it's the Pharisees. These are the people that are, Paul comes from them. Paul is the, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. These are the, the really strong theologically minded uh, set. And it's, it's a group of people that are called rabbi and they're honored as the great one. That's what rabbi means, my great one. And they are the ones that know and they are the ones that will tell you, thank you very much. And when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was entertaining or be, being entertained with sinners, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Tear the robes. Why does your teacher violate our policies? Because you're not supposed to be an extortionist. And these, these people are extortionists. You're not supposed to sell your body. But these women coming to this are selling their bodies. This immorality is unacceptable. And it is. You have correctly identified symptoms that are pointing to the illness, to the problem, right? But the solution is among them. Oh, what you're supposed to say is the person that John the Baptist said is the one needs to get around those sinners and save them from their sins, just like we read in the first story, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Get up and walk. It's wonderful. They should be coming to Jesus. He should be among them because he can save them and no one else can. And no, you don't go join them. This is what people do. Like, see, you could be a tax collector and sinner. Jesus hung out with them, so I guess I'll just be a tax collector and sinner. No. No, you're supposed to say, oh no, compassion for that person that's lost and Jesus can save them. And so let's rejoice that he is. When Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. In Hosea, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now these men that think they're righteous and are self-righteous looking at the sinful people don't realize that they are in desperate need of the saving work of Jesus just as much as the tax collectors and sinners. And so am I. And so are you. And I do not extort people. 
right? And I'm not participating in these unfruitful deeds of darkness that Matthew's people are associated with. I'm not talking about being a Corinthian, to borrow from the communion talk. I'm talking about the nature of S-I-N. It isn't that it offends me. It's that it is an offense to the infinite righteousness of God. And God's righteousness is going to execute just wrath on that sin. He must. See, we just, we get self-righteous. Now here's how self-righteousness works. The self-righteous Pharisee thinks I keep my rules that I think the Bible is saying. And so I'm good. And that puts me in a position of moral superiority to look down on the person that doesn't. By the way, the Hellraiser, people I would hang out with in my natural bent, my tendency is this way. The Hellraiser says, well, at least I'm not self-righteous like that idiot. At least I'm not self-righteous like that. That's self-righteous. You think you're better than the other person because you don't think you're better than the other person. That's insane. It's, a, it's an infinite recursion of stupidity. But that's, that's our sin. We tell ourselves we're the good one and the other is the bad one because they're different. Accounts for racism, accounts for all, a lot of the, of the horrors of our time. But what we need to do is, like 1 Corinthians 11, self-assess. Judge ourselves or not be judged. Look at yourself and let Jesus show you yourself. Are you sick? Because he came, to, he came to, as the physician to heal the sick. Are you the sinner or are you the righteous? Because if you don't need his righteousness, you can't have it. You need Jesus because you, like the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and everybody else, are broken. You're in desperate need of a savior. And now we have an embassy. John the, Apostle, John the Baptist, disciples come and you have this message here in the middle that's kind of a break point in the, the stories of, of Jesus' miraculous works and his authority. You have this break point where he's saying there's something new here. And, and that flows and I want to do it all in one bite because it's the stories all build on each other. The new order that Jesus proposes is in answer to the question about fasting. The disciple of John came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I mean, we're not Pharisees. We don't think we're self-righteous, but we're mourning about our wickedness like in the Beatitudes. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Okay, the most wonderful party you can have is a wedding party. The greatest day is the day that you're the bridegroom. And everybody wants to celebrate and feast. And you certainly, even if you planned on fasting, if it's the bridegroom's celebration, you don't fast, you put that aside because he's here. What he's saying is, I'm here. And that's just the same question as if he says, hey, come here, what do you do? You go, because it's him and he's here. And that's the message. The bridegroom is here. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and, they will, and then they'll fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Why not? Those that think wine means grape juice in the New Testament, y'all listen. It doesn't mean grape juice if the wineskins burst. Because it's fermenting and expanding, and the wineskin expands through that process. And that's what he's saying. The new wineskin has to, he says, he says um, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, both are preserved. What's the point? There's a new order. There's a new arrangement. My presence is the change. That if you have me, the kingdom is being offered. We're going to the new thing. 
And so it's not time to mourn over sin in that sense of fasting about your brokenness. It's time to rejoice that the Savior is with us. And we have him. So that, but when he goes, he says, there will be a time for them to fast. Does this mean that you should be fasting? The Bible never commands fasting. I would do whatever it takes to focus my attention on my Savior. And sometimes it, it helps to, with, to withhold something that you might otherwise enjoy to remind yourself to keep your thinking on Christ. That's what fasting is. It is never a hunger strike. I always have to talk about this. Fasting has never been a hunger strike where you get God's attention, where he's busy. And like, like, like Elijah said about Baal, that he's busy. He must be off uh, you know, going to the bathroom or something. That's not how God is. God is always attentive. He's always aware. And he's always looking for fellowship with you, even if you're, even if you're in sin, rejecting fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to fe- fellowship with you. So what is the fasting? It's not getting his attention. It's getting yours. That's what it's for. It's to, it's to, to manage yourself. It's a discipline factor for you. And um, I think that there's value. But the Bible never commands it. So, And by the way, we never talk about it. Never tell each other you're fasting. You know why? Because <laughs> Jesus said not to, Matthew 6. All right. And then you have the story of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead with a story in the middle of the story about the woman with the flow of blood. And both of them are 12. The, the flow of blood is 12 years old and the little, little girl is 12 years old. And that's an interesting uh, combination in the story in Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things, so he's in the middle of saying about the new order uh, the temple, I'm sorry, the synagogue official, Jairus, comes. He came and bowed down before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand over on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to, to uh, follow him and so did his disciples. Now, he's, he's, it's in the middle of the story of going to take care of Jairus' daughter. And why is he going there? He's not going there to mourn. He's going there to raise the dead. And he will. And a woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll get well. Because she believed he had the power to do it. And Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Now, if I only have one verse in the Bible about healing, I might make, might make up all kinds of things about healing. I might say that if you don't get healed, when I, when I put my hand, then you didn't have enough faith. I might make all, all kinds of things. If you don't have what you want, it's because you didn't pray hard enough and say, God, do it, because I call it down from heaven. And this word faith nonsense that is a satanic lie about you being in sovereignty over God. You're not. God's God. You're not. He does listen to you. He does care about you. And sometimes he keeps saying no. And he's okay to say no because he knows what's best for you. Now, this is her faith. She says, if I can only touch his garment, I can be made well. And you can, and he can heal you, and he may, and he may not. But choosing to say, you do it, God, and I trust you, doesn't mean he's going to do it. But he certainly can, and you always operate in that faith that God can do what he wants to do. And this comes up in the story further. Now, when Jesus came into the official's, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then verse 23, when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players, that's what I want when someone dies, I want flute players to show up. 
And the crowd in noisy disorder. Now these people mourn. They know how to mourn. It's like a profession. And they've got a whole processional that came together. We've got to get the band together to do the proper mourning. And there's been enough time from the kid's death until now that they've got the team assembled. I mean, we got on our, our, our mourning clothes. We got our mourning flutes out, our, our, our funeral gear. And we're, we're fired up. The machine is fired up. We're in our second set okay, of mourning at this big old world celebration of the horror that someone died, especially a child. Unthinkable, right, that you would lose a child, but it's been the experience of human beings. And it's portrayed in Genesis chapter 22 as the way that God would save mankind. He would send his son and he would die for our sins. So here this man is and everyone's mourning and then this is the most interesting part of the story of Matthew 9 to me. This is the one that hits me the most. When Jesus came into the official's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder. In verse 24, he said, leave, for the girl's not died but is asleep. Which means her condition is temporary. And they began laughing at him. It doesn't say laughing with him. It says they began laughing at him. This is the reception of the Messiah with God in the flesh when he shows up to heal the sick. And the stories are getting known. People know about the leper. He told people. But they laughed at him. Now, laughter is a great study in the Bible. Where does laughter happen? Think about that in the Bible. God laughs very occasionally, but he does laugh. Where in the Bible do you see laughter? Yeah, at first Abraham and then Sarah. Oh, they're rolling on the floor. You're going to give us a son in our old age. Let me get down on the ground so I can roll around and laugh. Why is she laughing in her tent? Oh, I didn't laugh, but you did laugh. (laughs) Right? It's usually a mistake on our part uh, when you see people laugh. It's not wrong to laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the nations scoffing against him in Psalm 2. But anyway, this laughter is what grabs my attention because it's Jesus. And they're laughing at him. And he doesn't snap his finger And Thanos, everybody, right there. Oh, you think that's funny? Ha! He doesn't do that. I I might do that. I'm not saying I would do that. Some might say that I would do that, but I don't say that I would do that. All right. (laughs) All kinds of references. Okay, when when the crowd had been sent out, now that's all he did. He just sent them out. They're laughing at him. He's like, okay, ha, ha, go out. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And it's very matter-of-fact the way Matthew writes it. Took her by the hand, she got up. She's, she's awake. The news spread throughout all the land. Who's laughing now? Well, the, the girl's family. They're laughing with joy that the kid is alive and she was dead. And then you have the two blind men, son of David, heal us. Jesus went up from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. And Jesus said to him, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you hear it? Just like the woman said, if I touch his garment, I can be healed. You can. Do you believe, what does he say? That I am able to do this. Do not pretend that your desire is more important to God than his choice. It isn't. And that's why if someone is deathly ill and you pray for them to live and God to do a miracle and they trust in God that he could do the miracle and then he doesn't do the miracle, you haven't failed God doesn't fail. He has our days numbered. But he could. He could do a miracle. Absolutely. I think gravity's a miracle. I really do. Nobody understands that we can, we can map it. We can kind of model. We can't account for it. He can do anything. 
Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes. It shall be done to you according to your faith. You can do it if you want. It's on you. You've got to choose. You can do it if you want. That's my prayer when someone's down. I'll pray with you. If you're sick, I will always pray with you. I'll pray, Father, if it's your will, we know you can if you want to be the great physician here and heal. But however you do it, it's yours. And our life is yours. That's how I pray for the sick. I'm not going to superintend on God's volition. I'm not God. He doesn't think I am. He doesn't want me to be. He wants me to trust him. And their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. How did Jesus warn them? Sternly. That's an adverb. <laughs> he sternly warned them. <clears throat> but they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. <laughs> He'll, he won't mind. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And then they go tell everybody. All right. It's a very common thing in the Messianic secret stories. So then the chapter closes down with the mute demoniac, and you have to tell the rest of the story. I know we're, we're going long, but you have to tell the whole story because there was objection when Jesus said, I can heal, I can, I can cleanse your sins, I can forgive your sins. And now there's going to be objection when he casts out the demons, the unclean spirits, and heals the man, cleans the man up. You can be forgiven your sins, and now they're going to accuse him of casting out Satan and the power of Satan. And that makes a that makes a bracket. That makes a, a, a frame around the story. He's doing the works of the kingdom, but they're rejecting the kingdom offer. That's Matthew. That's what's happening thematically in Matthew. Verse 32, and they were going out, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, we heard about them earlier. The Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the power of the, de by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then this is Jesus' attitude toward these people. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. If he could be a curse for their sake, he would. He has adopted the attitude of Jesus Christ toward these people, the apple of his eye. He felt compassion on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's the attitude of Jesus toward these people that are going to reject him. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You've been trained by example in all of these stories, all of these little caveats and events in the life of Jesus in his ministry in chapters 8 and 9. You've seen all of these works. You know the message. It's about him. It's about Jesus. He's the Messiah. The kingdom is here because he's here. Receive him. Repent for the kingdom is in your grasp as the gospel message of the kingdom that God sent Jesus to preach to Israel. And we've already seen in the foreshadowing way Matthew tells it that the Pharisees are going to lead the nation to reject him. And Jesus knows that apparently. And he still offers. And we benefit today. God is gracious and loving and merciful beyond anything we can imagine. The challenge of discipleship in Matthew to we who haven't rejected Jesus, who want the kingdom to come, bring it, Lord, any time. I'm ready now. Let's go. Your timing, I mean, I don't claim to know when it is, but I'm ready now. That's how the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our attitude. So if we adopt that attitude of the remnant that received Jesus and didn't reject him, what does that mean for us? That means that we have work to do. That means that whatever his agenda for us is, we want to adopt it. And we're, 
We're going to tell people about the Lord Jesus. We're going to make disciples of all the nations. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the eternal life which we celebrated with the Lord's table and in this wonderful celebration of the ministry of Jesus in Israel, a ministry that was ultimately rejected because of arrogance, because of blindness, because of the devil putting the veil over the souls of the hearers. So many reasons, Father, but we thank you that we see our Savior. We don't reject Him. We receive Him, and we want to please Him. We want to be about His work. He is our preceptor, the author and perfecter of the faith, and we are marching lockstep with Him in the power of Your Spirit to accomplish Your objectives in the time in which we live, making disciples in preparation for the offered coming kingdom. Father, we look forward to that. Help us be mindful of that. And we do pray for those in the hearing of my voice that may not be believers in Jesus, that may not have understood. Father, those that thought they were saying a prayer and just mouthing words and didn't actually put their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior who died for their sins on the cross. Father, let this message be real and personal to all who hear that Jesus is your Savior because he died for your sins. He, he who knew no sin was made sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there isn't a program of reform or discipline or improvement or penitence that can get you what Jesus can offer alone by simply dying for your sins and you trusting in him. The only way to appropriate this free gift of eternal life is by faith. For by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Father, help our loved ones, our family, our friends understand that message of your amazing grace. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. <laughs>